Hi, friends. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you like what we talk about here on the Belonging Podcast, I think you'll really love my book. It's called Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. And it is available right now wherever books are sold. It is a beautifully illustrated guide to connecting with the earth, your ancestors, and your communities as you come home to your whole self. Though we live in a radically different looking world, the needs of our bodies and spirits are the same as the ancestors we come from. I divide this book into four parts, land, lineage, community, and self, and I take you on a journey for engaging more deeply with your life. I provide stories from my own life and I share rituals, recipes, and ancestral wisdom, journal prompts to support you on your individual and unique and sacred path. You can get more info and bonuses at rootandritualbook.com and pick it up at your favorite bookstore online or in person. Thanks for all your support. It means the world to me. I'm Becca Piastrelli, and this is Belonging, where I talk about what it means to belong to the earth, to yourself, to your ancestors, and in community. Hello, and welcome back to Belonging, the podcast. It's Becca Piastrelli here. Wow, I'm recording this as most of Turtle Island, North America, is covered in ice and freezing temperatures and snow. And I'm having this moment in this like grief, spirally acceptance, deeper understanding of where we are in Earth's time, seeing a lot of people without power right now and just like the limits of the power grid and and really cold. And, And so I'm just wondering about meeting these new times that can be quite scary and griefy of realizing the limits of our power grid and how everyone needs a generator. And Tim and I both want electric cars. And is it smart to have electric cars right now? And how do we make sure everyone has heat? And if all of us are burning wood, how will that affect the air? And it's just like ancestral conversations in modern times. And I can feel the part of myself that's like too scary. just want to hide my head in a hole and just hope my heat works and my lights work and my car goes. And because so many of us have limited capacity right now with winter here in the Northern Hemisphere and pandemic fatigue and the overculture of hustling and urgency. And so many of you have children at home and trying to work and trying to school them and How can we meet these times with an ancestral knowing when we're operating at this different pace with such little resourcing? And I don't have the answers. I'm just here to say I'm in the conversation with you and in the wondering of it. And if it's hard right now for you, I just really hear you and see you. Like 
it's hard for so many. I find so many of my text conversations because I'm a texter now. I'm a big old texter now because I'm breastfeeding so much with people who are just going through tough stuff. It's not just one friend with like a tough situation with a cancer diagnosis or a child who has passed away or someone sick with COVID or someone's lost a job. It's like a lot, it's, it's a lot of people. And again, this feels like it has this always been here and we're just opening our eyes to it. And what can we do to resource ourselves, even in the micro moments? What can we do to like plant our roots in the soil and be with the grief, right? Instead of avoiding it, saying, I can't handle it. How can we build resilience in our bones and move the grief through somatically? I'm realizing I'm not moving my body enough and I'm holding a lot of tension and anxiety. I find when I lay down to go to sleep, my heart races and I for Hearthfire this past week, we had a guest teacher, Nadia Munla, who does embodiment work and she had us moving our bodies and it was just like two songs into her playlist and I was just sobbing. I was just sobbing and I couldn't tell you why except my body needed to move that energy. So I'm I'm in this curiosity place, this inquiry around how can we feel more connected to the earth? How can we move this energy how can we feel more connected to each other instead of just waiting until we can gather again? How many of you are just waiting until we can gather again? How can we make Zooms or FaceTimes or Skypes feel more sacred, more meaningful, more present? These are the questions in my heart today. As I share with you twice a month where I'm at and what's going on, today's episode, I think really ties in beautifully to these deeper wonderings. They all should, right? This theme of belonging, it's a wild, tangled, long, multi-layered journey for many lifetimes. It's a conversation with Rochelle Garcia Saliga. So let me tell you about her. Rochelle Garcia Saliga is a mother, wife, and midwife who has spent the past 18 years working with women and families in service to women-centered family-centered birth, health, and life. She's the creator and director of innate postpartum care certification training, a postpartum wellness training for birth and healthcare professionals, which has trained hundreds of practitioners and supports thousands of mothers and families worldwide. Rochelle is deeply invested in the revitalization of community living as the most important medicine of our times. Yes. And is the co-founder of Starseed Root School of Traditional Healing, a school and revillaging project. Yes. All of Rochelle's work is dedicated to midwifing a cultural shift, honoring our innate wisdom, personal authority, and the sanctity of life. So I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm recording this intro over a month after I recorded this conversation with Rochelle. And I'm going to give it to you straight. It was one of the hardest weeks so far in my own motherhood journey. And I share about it. I share about it in the interview. And I'll tell you that when I got off the interview, I went upstairs where Bethany was and just burst into tears and just needed to be held from a multitude of feelings. I think the words Rochelle shares really land deeply for me in this postpartum time I'm in. And I truly think you don't need to have given birth or have a child to feel the depth and the urgency of what we talk about today. 
it just landed in a really tender time. And I, I know there are no mistakes here with the timing. I remember being very tired that day and saying, I have to, I have to shift this conversation. It, it must happen. And it really shifted me after having this conversation with her. It really shifted me, the conversations I'm having with fellow mamas and parents and just the fire she give. You'll hear at the end, she talks about um, rage being the, on the other side of the coin of creation. And I've realized like there's some anger, some righteous anger and some urgency with which I, I feel about life, about these times. And um, it can be heavy. And there's something about speaking to others about it that brings levity and honoring to it. So in this episode, we talk about Midwives being the original tenders of community care from womb to tomb. What have we done in our modern society to minimize these these keepers of, of wisdom of the body over the thousands of years? We talk about that. We talk about the unavoidable grief at the repair work we as a global community must do to tend to birthing folk and revillage. We talk about returning to our biology to break the cycle of disease pathology treatment versus caretaking. Very interesting. The importance of the exogestation period, otherwise known as postpartum, and how to begin the process of revillaging and creating a regenerative future. I will also say, if you're listening to this in February, late February, 2021, Rochelle has a certification course that I believe is opening soon in her innate postpartum traditions. If you're interested in that, whether you are a birth worker, healthcare professional, or interested in this stuff like I am, I am very interested in this stuff. You might want to take a look and we'll share all of that on the show notes, belongingpodcast.com. So I tenderly and also excitedly share this conversation with you with Rochelle Garcia Saliga. Did you live in Sebastopol? No. I oh. taught there one time. Oh, okay. Because my um, postpartum doula, now like deep family member, was like, I saw her in Sebastopol. But you're in New Mexico now, yes? Yeah, I'm in New Mexico. But I mean, yeah, so what year was that? 2018. I taught out there and I have a good friend who lives out there. So maybe that's when we saw each other. Yeah, cool. I where do you live? I live in Marin County, so just just south. Of, I wish I lived in Sebastopol. You do? Yeah. We live close to San Francisco, but because my partner works there, but you know, now we're in a time when that isn't a thing. So I'm totally. in deep conversation. Speaking of what I want to talk to you about, right? About like where do you where can you live in a place to create community and in connection with the land if you're not so tied into commuting you know mm-hmm. that's that's just dictated our lives so totally. we're in that inquiry and we just had a baby and it's like oh our lives completely shifted and our values and we're in a second lifetime together so yep. all of a sudden everything changes yep. mm-hmm. <laughs> um, beautiful well we've begun I suppose Rochelle Garcia Salika Thank you for joining me on Belonging. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, yeah. Such a pleasure. I've been really looking forward to speaking with you. And I knew I needed to wait until after I had my baby (laughs) to talk to you just because I've been so curious about this concept of revillaging. I've been so curious about supporting mothers and babies in particular, families. And um, something told me it would become like a more embodied, deeper connection to it after I had a baby. And that's true because I'm talking to you four months postpartum after having my baby Atlas. And uh, it now feels like an urgent need to talk about this as opposed to like an interesting intellectual topic. Uh, So I'd love to, you probably have like a spiel, but I'd love to know a little bit more about you and innate traditions, whatever feels true to you so we can sort of orient to who you are. Okay. So I'm a mother and I'm a wife and family is central to my life and I'm a midwife. And the way that I learned midwifery and learned about midwifery was not just about midwives attending births. It was midwives as really like the original caretakers, the original healers, the original tenders to community and to womb to tomb healthcare, really, right? So anything that happens from birth to death, that was the original role of midwifery. And so I'm not attending births right now, but I still very much feel I'm a midwife because It's how I see the whole world. Like my whole orientation to life is through the lens of traditional midwifery. So for me, when I say traditional midwifery, I'm not talking about a tradition specific to a cultural lineage. I'm talking about authentic midwifery and authentic midwifery, no matter what cultural lineage we come from, really was always concerned with the same thing. And the same thing in terms of traditional midwifery or authentic midwifery is relative to in what way were we conceived and what was our gestational experience like as the baby in the womb? What was it like for us as a baby being born What was our early childhood experience like? What were those foundational relationships like? How was our early attachment experiences? And then in what way are we in relationship in our community? And then in what way for the women, do we conceive our children? Do we gestate our children? Do we birth our children and like that? Because what the truth is, is that no matter what our cultural lineage is, These things are all relative to the tradition of midwifery because the current and future health of humanity can be predicted based upon those life experiences. And so as midwives in the realm of traditional midwifery, there's a caretaking of that understanding because there's an investment in the health of current and future generations. And so it has to start there, right? So it's the focus really is like the primal continuum of human life, which is from conception to the first three years of life, because what happens for us as small ones, as the young ones in that time is that 
we are formed. Our nervous systems are formed. Our subconscious and unconscious patternings are formed. And then really what we're doing for the rest of our lives is we're living out that patterning that was laid down during that time in our life. And so is that patterning laid down from a place of strong attachment and from a place of trust and love in the adults in our life? Do we relate to life from a place of a felt sense of safety and security and trust in relationships and trust in life? Or do we relate to life from a place of fear, from a place of anger, from a place of distrust? And that really is laid down then in the primal continuum of human life. And so what we're doing as adults really at this time on the planet is we're living in a time of repair. And so all of the work that we're all doing individually and collectively for that matter, whether we're doing it in therapy or we're doing it in ceremony or whatever, is we're really repairing those early life wounding experiences. So innate traditions, my work is like, okay, yes, part of it is repair. Let's repair that now so we can be functioning, mature, responsible adults as we should be. But the other part of it of my work is let's not do that. (laughs) Like we know how to create something different. Like there's a clear template for that. You're going to hear my um, chickens in the background. There's a clear template for that. So I'm deeply invested in not doing what's been done for the past hundreds, if not thousands of years and changing the trajectory of humankind through tending to the primal continuum of human life. So the way that I do that through my work through innate traditions is, so I primarily work with healthcare providers because the healthcare providers are the ones who are working with the mothers. And so I'm working with midwives and doulas and nurses and osteopathic doctors and chiropractic doctors and massage therapists and herbalists and all those who women in their childbearing continuum are going to seek support from. Because the healthcare providers originally, traditionally, were leaders within their communities. Now, anyone can become a healthcare provider if they have money, essentially, to pay for their education. But the healthcare providers, most of them, a large percentage of them in the modern world, are not working and living in integrity. And they're not offering what I call healthcare. They're offering what I call death care or sick care or perpetuation of sick care. And I'm really invested in working with the healthcare providers as like a ripple effect. So it's like the ripple effect is then they can go and work with the mothers and families. And it's like that droplet of water and the concentric rings that go out and out and out. Because if a mother feels, feels, it's like a felt sense, not like a preconditioned response to this. But if a mother feels safe and good and nurtured and loved and protected in her pregnancy and birthing and postpartum experience, what comes up and out of that as a mother is a fierceness and a softness and an empowerment to really assume what that role of mother is. And I feel quite certain that if mothers were feeling like that, we would not be living on the planet that we're currently living on. So that's largely what my work is relative to its, its traditional authentic midwifery as it applies cross-culturally 
And for us as adults, it is coming into our full maturation as adults, not like a 40-year-old woman with the mentality of a 15-year-old or a 50-year-old man with the mentality of a 13-year-old, but really coming into our adulthood to take up the privileges and responsibility for our lives and shift the the course of humanity. Oh, thank you for all of that. My whole body is lit up by this mission, which I'm sure you're told by moms, new mothers all the time, like, wow, yes, this is so needed. I think so. I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm, I'm recognizing in my own four month postpartum experience, like, I guess I feel a lot of grief, mm-hmm. a lot of grief for the mothers mm-hmm. of this world. I can't. So I am in a partnership and I have enough financial privilege. I, you know, I brought in a postpartum doulas multiple. Mm-hmm. And I just constantly had the feeling of it was never enough. Mm-hmm. It was just, it is never enough for the level of support I wanted to feel. It wasn't a list where everything was checked off. It was a feeling I just mm-hmm. never got. And it it made me frustrated and angry, the rage. Wow. And, and so, so sad and just alone feeling. And then you add in the pandemic, it's, it's, it was rough. It's been rough. And I just can't stop thinking about single mothers. I can't stop thinking about single mothers, Rochelle. I can't stop thinking about the millions of mothers around the world who don't even have a lick of the support I got. Mm-hmm. And then I hear your mission and I'm, I want it so bad. And I, I just feel grief. I just, and, and, and as I'm sure that's a common thing you hear, but I just feel like, Oh shoot. Like you're saying like the past hundred of thousands of years, like we're in this place of repair. It's like, this is a big task. Yeah. And I, I think it's unavoidable grief, you know, and it's unavoidable grief as a mother in the modern world. And it's unavoidable grief as a care provider to mothers in this modern world, because from the care provider perspective, and all of the hundreds of women that I've trained at this point now, it's like the general feedback is, I mean, there's so much grief because they're just, they're still, they're one woman working with the mothers and families. And so even in their highest, most exalted state of care offering, they're not a village, right? One care provider is not going to ever provide to a mother, what a mother needs, because what the mother needs is a village. And so what's missing is the village. So there's so much grief for the care providers to then have to leave the mother's home or the mother leaves her office or whatever the situation is. And then just to feel the grief that even though they did all that's within their capability, it's still not enough. And then when, as a mom, it's not enough because it's still like you're getting care from this one person or you have this one thing happening, but it's still completely fragmented because what we're missing is like the deeper holding of community and of village and of aunties and grandmothers who would be holding that. And so that's what's missing. And of course there's grief there. And I think it's really important to feel that. And I think it's important to name that. And I think so much actually of what gets diagnosed as all these perinatal mood disorder stuff is really grief. And it's grief 
And, and what happens for so many moms in the modern world is they internalize it, right? So it becomes something's wrong with me. Okay. Like what I'm hearing from you is you have an awareness to be like tracking what's going on outside of you and relating it to how do other moms in the world feel. And this acknowledgement of like, you know, I'm pulling in all this care and it's still not enough. But what a lot of moms do who aren't tracking all those things, they say something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with me because I, I, I can't do this or it feels like too much. And so then those moms who internalize it, then they'll go to a therapist because, you know, they have proclaimed that something's wrong with them and they're totally dysfunctional. And then what happens in the medical model of care of the current medical industrial complex is that those mothers are then drugged with psychiatric medications, right? Because something is wrong with them. They're told um, that you're depressed or that you're anxious or that you're rageful, right? And to me, like the reframe on that is what if that is a normal and healthy response to a highly dysfunctional environment, okay? Like what if mothers understood that the rage that we're feeling or the grief that we're feeling or, you know, whatever the emotion is, what if we understood that nothing's wrong with us for feeling that and that what if those are indicators of our highly intelligent bodies saying this shit is not working, okay? And if we collectively are able to do that and be like, this shit is not working, and the, and the collective then begins to listen to the mothers as barometers for the entire collective, it's a complete shift of perspective and a complete reframe on epidemic you know, levels of perinatal mood disorders and postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety and all these labelings and patholo- pathologizing that happens for mothers to be like, oh, wow we really should listen to the mothers because the mothers are the barometer for all of humanity. And look at how the mothers are feeling. Something is really off, right? And so then we can take that information and do something with it collectively to make a change, you know? So to me, it's like, we have to feel all of those things as the collective and as the mothers, right? And as the mothers, it's, totally intense, right? It's intense. It doesn't matter how much privilege, quote unquote, one mother thinks they have, because we're all still living within this highly dysfunctional collective, you know? So, okay, so you have more support and I get in, you have a roof over your head and you don't have to worry about the food that you're going to eat and you have a partner and all those things. And then there's a mother who doesn't have any of those things. And in both situations, it's still highly dysfunctional you know, and it's highly dysfunctional because the way that we're currently living does not work for our human design. The nuclear family doesn't work for our human design. This system, the global system in which we're living doesn't work for our human design in terms of families being separated to work, to pay bills. It doesn't work. It, It just doesn't work with our physiology. And so I feel like the point that we have to come back to is this basic understanding that we have a physiologic design of what's required for life to thrive. And when we follow it, then we have a clear map towards health and wellness. And if we don't follow this design, 
then we get into dis-ease, you know, and that disease is either in our individual bodies or it's in the collective body, but it's dis-ease. So to me, it's really that we need to get out of, I don't know what the right word is still. It's like, it's like we need to get out of morality almost is how it feels like, and just get into our very biology and follow nature's orders. Mm. Wow. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for, for all of that. Mm-hmm. I realized I was feeling shame. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You see the, what that's what I'm saying. Like we yeah. internalize it. Like I feel shame. I feel guilty. There's an internalization of it. And that's really how oppression works, right? It's like, then, mm-hmm. then you take it on and you internalize it and think that the problem's yours. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's ours. I'm not saying that like, then we should just like throw ourselves to the side and we're victims. Right. I'm not saying that either, but I'm saying that we have to understand that we are our environments. So we're a reflection of like, we, we're not going to supersede our environment. And so then we think about if there's a flower, right. Growing in your yard and the flower is like not really thriving you're not like, God, stupid flower. You know, mm. you're like a piece of shit flower or <laughs> what's wrong right. with you flower. You're like, oh, I have forgotten to water this flower. Oh, this flower needs more sunlight. It's all overgrown. It needs more sunlight. Oh, I need to add some compost so that it has more nutrients. And then once all of those elements are added in, then the flower can thrive, right? But the, the flower can't thrive if it doesn't have the environment that it needs. And that's the same thing for moms. It's the same thing for any living being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I really appreciate you just so clearly stating that all of this means feeling the grief mm-hmm. and, and being with the grief. And I can really see how birth workers and postpartum care workers and probably burn out out of their own <laughs> desire to provide care. Like they mm-hmm. just, it's so messed up, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Dang. But I, I do in my own discomfort. So I'm in a pretty intense moment of discomfort this week because my child is in a sleep regression. Basically she's unable, she's waking up more and I'm noticing my initial response is it's a problem that needs to be fixed. My initial response is like, how do we fix this? Right. And then I, the internet tells me to like, you know, have her cried out or whatever. And it's like very disturbing to my body. And I'm just realizing my initial response is not, this is something to be with. And this is like a, this is a a child who needs like the comfort of uh, her mother's breast, right? In a bed (laughs) to, to navigate a major developmental moment, right? It's not an innate thought. It's like a a retraining. I'm finding myself retrained. So in, in all my research and all my work and doing ritual and ceremony and returning and decolonizing and returning to my indigeneity and returning to the earth and all this stuff, I still find like I have this like problem solver, mentality. And there was, there's a moment in my like sleep deprived loneliness, 
anxiety. It was having panic attacks. It was the whole this whole thing in the first few weeks after giving birth. I never really could recover from a 48-hour sleepless birth where I I just was like, someone come and fix me. Mm-hmm. And and there was like lots of mentions of doctors and things like that. And that and I ultimately what what helped me was like just a lot of people in a pandemic, I said, come in my home and and hold me and hold my baby and um and feed me. And it it helped. Of course it wasn't enough, but it helped. And so I guess what I'm trying, what I'm coming to in this verbal meandering I'm I'm doing is the time it takes and the consciousness and devotion it takes to being aware of these patterns, these program patterns in all of our mindsets that are individualist, that are, you know, I don't know if westernized is the word. You had way better words here that that have us in this like problem-solving, individual-minded uh, mindset that just perpetuates this disease, this grief. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess I'm calling in grace for myself in in this unlearning as I as I navigate in a sleep deprived, lonely space. Like how because I just want to meet, I just want to meet this moment as like an awakening mother to you know in a way that is communally minded and is baby minded and uh, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. Yeah, totally, and. And I like what I track in that is, you know, the orientation that we all have, you know, some people are going to say colonize, but so for me, when people talk about colonization, they're talking about the past 500 years. And the way that I think about it is that we can say that racism and white supremacy, you know, was established 500 years ago. And this tool of colonization and the way that we think about it in terms of Europeans coming and colonizing and like that. But we also have this collective um, historical amnesia. It's like as if everything began 500 years ago and it right. didn't. Right. And we really need to have this broader scope of understanding of how long has this actually been going on for? You know, like why is it? And we have to do that digging to understand how are we in this situation that we're in as humanity? And everyone always wants to just go back. It all started 500 years ago. But it absolutely did not start 500 years ago in terms of the current collective conundrum that we're in. You know, I mean, even if we go back a thousand years beyond that, so then we're going back a thousand five hundred years in time, and then we're looking at the Inquisitions throughout all of Indigenous Europe. And when people talk about the the witch huntings and the witch burnings, I mean, what that was was it was the annihilation of all of the midwives and medicine keepers of Indigenous mm-hmm. Europe. Mm-hmm. And to understand that it is from Europe that modern allopathic medicine arose. So if you annihilate all of the midwives and healers of a region, and then you build a system of medicine in that same region, that's completely void of traditional understanding of medicine and body and life. What the hell is that system of medicine built upon? It's not built upon how do you sustain and keep life flourishing because all of those wisdom keepers were killed. So then so then what do what what are we working with? And so even if we just focus on obstetrics and gynecology as a field, that was built in Europe within the medical establishment and then exported to the United States and all other parts of the world 
But you had a bunch of men who were white men because they were European men who had never partaken in the world of women's health or birth or labor. And how, how do they learn things if they, there's no one for them to learn from? So the roots of modern allopathic medicine are really rotten, okay? And they're really rooted in pathology detection and pathology treatment. It is not rooted in how do we caretake and maintain and sustain life. It's completely opposite, right? So like you have those in medical school dissecting corpses, so the bodies of dead people, to study about the body when a dead body can't teach you about a live body because it's dead. So mm-hmm. it's I really orient to it as death medicine, okay, not life-sustaining medicine. So within all of that is to look at the historical context of why, why do we pathologize mothers like this? Why do we pathologize childbirth? Then we pathologize our children. And it all comes from the same system, right? So right now your baby is four months, you said? Yes. So around this time, right, this is when everyone's like, it's sleep, it's um, sleep regressions. And regression means like going backwards, right? Because the Mm. baby's waking up more. Mm -hmm. But if we understood, right, physiology, so our babies are making 1 million neural connections per second. Okay. So for people who think that's impossible, that information comes from the Harvard Center on the developing child, okay? So our babies are making 1 million neural connections per second. And at like three or four months when people are talking about sleep regressions, what is happening there is that babies are making so many neural connections, okay? There's so much happening for them in terms of their own evolution and development that they do wake up more, okay? But for us as mothers, as parents in the modern world, because we're so under-supported, for us it's like really shitty because for us it means they're waking up more and the lack of support we already felt, now we feel it a hundred times. So then we want to like fix the situation. But we can't fix the situation because there's nothing to be fixed because this is a normal, natural, healthy thing that's happening. Okay. So it's a normal, natural, healthy thing that's happening, but then we end up pathologizing it because it's so stressful for us because of the lack of support and holding that we have, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so these are the old midwifery teachings, right? The old midwifery teachings, like which would have been part of all of our respective cultural holdings, is that for us to understand that our babies don't actually complete their gestational periods until they're about nine months old. Okay. We have intragestation, so which is like pregnancy, you know, we have birth, right? And so everyone knows, oh yeah, that's gestation period. If you ask anyone, they're like nine months, 40 weeks, whatever. Everybody knows that. But most people in the collective don't remember that we have intragestation, that period of time, and then we have exogestation. And exogestation is really like the first nine months of life, okay? So when our babies are born, they're born with 50% of adult brain volume, okay? And by the time that they are three years old, they have developed 90% of adult brain volume. And that brain volume is developed contingent upon their relationships. 
So that first nine months of life that our babies are outside of the womb, they're completing their gestational experience. They're not fully developed. And what does that mean in real time? It means they cannot do anything for themselves. They are dependent upon us for their temperature regulation. They're dependent upon us for their respiration regulation. They're dependent upon us for their hormonal regulation in the sense of stress hormones or safety hormones, to put it in a simple way. They're dependent upon us for all things. Okay. If you take a baby, when babies are taken away from their mothers, their biological mothers, and they don't have that ongoing closeness, physical closeness in that first nine months, their physiologic systems are not able to do what they're meant to do because it is the mother's body that regulates the baby's body. That's what a dyad is. So mother baby, and so it's not like these these terms are just endearing slogans when people say mother baby or mama toto, which comes, um, I don't remember where from Africa, but it's mama toto, mama baby. I mean, so many people have these ways of saying it. Mother baby is one physiologic unit because the mother is regulating the baby's physiologic systems and the baby's actually regulating mother's physiologic systems because in the same way that a baby's going to feel stressed if the mother is not in the baby's proximity, the mother is going to feel stress in her system if the baby's not in her proximity. So mm. the collective has forgotten this, right? So then there's no respect, there's no honor, there's mothers who are having to go back to work at six weeks postpartum, right? Everyone's like, get it together. Your baby's three months old now. You're you're cool. You know, that's like the support that was there in the early postpartum tends to not be there. But it's like, what if we all understood that gestation isn't even complete until a really simple way to think about it is when our babies are able to move away from us on their own. Okay. Mm. So, you know, in, in more scientific terms, we can say when a baby has, I think it's between 60 to 70% of, of their adult brain volume. And when the baby can move away from us on their own, that's when we know that exogestation is complete. So it, it is what happens. We, we, and I'm not saying this to you as an individual, this is the collective thing. What we don't understand, we tend to pathologize, right? And we pathologize mm-hmm. it also because we don't have the support that we need to do what we have to do. Yes, I, f- I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> That's I what I'm too. saying. <laughs> My daughter is 10 and I think about it pretty much every day, all day. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So I guess I'm in this place. I'm just constantly in like the how, like how, because I, the grief is important. And I think I tire of these conversations I'm having with mothers and non-mothers um, or, you know, pre-mothers about like, this sucks and we got to deal with it. That's really what I get. I remember in like the early weeks, I was reaching out to all my mama friends over text and they were like, yep, it sucks. Yep, it sucks. Yep, it sucks. And I was mm-hmm. like, wait, really? Really? Mm-hmm. That's that's what you have to say? And I have compassion for why they say it, but but I love, I'm, this is, this is all why I want to talk to you because you are engaged in the how it's a big, how 
Mm-hmm. It's a gargantuan, nearly impossible, but not impossible how. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's probably, it's hard to put in, you know, to a little soundbite on a podcast, but, but this is, you know, this is what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about how do we bring in the non-mothers? Like how, how can partners, you know, not have the entire desire for the village projected upon them, but they can show up better. Like how can we do this in a way that is healing this like time of repair? Right. Especially because like, I can tell you right now, I was not raised by my parents this way and my parents were not raised that way and their parents were not raised that way. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a big task. And, and I just want to know, what I can do and where to start uh, or continue in, in the how of, of revillaging and mm. making, and making this repair happen to be a regenerative future for, mm. for my baby and, and all the babies. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to speak to like two hows. So Great. how in terms of like what I've done as an individual for the how is like created this postpartum care training that I teach that, teaches all of this to healthcare providers so that then they can bring it out into their communities and have it be disseminated like that. And then what they're doing is like, there's this certification process that I created. And once they complete it, then I give to them a community education series that now we're calling postpartum care planning because people are resonating with that more. So it's teaching all of these things Um, not just to mothers, but to the mother and her partner. And then it's really encouraged that anyone who's going to be with them in the postpartum time that they take this class, right? So that's being taught in local communities around the world. And and the innate providers are starting to teach this community education series or postpartum care planning, however women and families want to think about it. They're starting to teach this online starting this month because this is community level education that has to happen right now. The collective doesn't even know what they don't know. Right. So the collective doesn't know what they don't know. And so when you try to present this um, really to first time parents are like, I don't need that. We're good. Um, My husband has two weeks off from work or my mom's (laughs) going to be out for a week to help us out. And there's, nothing that you can really say because honestly there was like an arrogance and an ignorance. Oh, that was me. That was me for sure. Just like five months ago. (laughs) Right. And so what's happening is that those who are coming to take this class, this postpartum care planning series are parents who have, this is their second baby or third baby or on because they were like, that was hellacious first time around. Let's not do that again. So those are the ones who are taking the classes. It's not first-time parents, right? So, But it's community-level education that has to happen because it's not that the moms don't need to know this. It's like everyone should know this, but it's that those who are taking care of the moms need to know this information, you know? So that's like my individual outward expression of that work. And, And in terms of like the collective thing, in terms of what we can all do, I really feel like, and I'm probably going to end up swearing a lot when I'm expressing this, I feel like people need to wake the fuck up and get radicalized. I mean, I don't really have a nice way to say it right now, but it's like, because I feel really kind of pissed off actually on this day about these things. But it's like, uh, you know, 
when people talk about colonization, it's like, to me, the biggest way that we've been colonized is through the relinquishing of our own powers to external authorities. Um, the medical experts know more than I do. The government knows more than I do. The priest knows more than I do. The ceremonial leader knows more than I do. Everybody knows more than we know about our own selves. And that is some really deep conditioning. And I feel like it might be like the biggest work um, of our lifetime, that piece. I don't think it actually like ever ends in this lifetime, the, the, the unraveling, the healing from that indoctrination. But there, it's people have to pick up their own power and pick up their own will, okay? And in order to pick up your own power and pick up your own will, there's a lot of healing work involved because why have we not picked up our own power? Why have we not picked up our own will? Where the hell is our own will? And to begin to put into action the opposite of what's not working, right? So the way that I think about it is like another thing that we've all been highly conditioned about is to think that anger and rage are bad, okay? Mm -hmm. So anger and rage are bad. So if you feel it, then the next thing you should do is like get yourself out of anger and rage. You know, it's like go and meditate or whatever. And clearly there has to be a way to not use the anger in a destructive way. But what we need to understand is that anger and rage are super purposeful when we know how to use them and when we know how to not be destructive with them, whether we're talking about externally destructive or internally destructive. But when you can be with your anger and not try to change it or not pathologize it, and you can just really feel what you're angry about, okay, and let yourself feel it. And then get into a place where the energy becomes neutral, okay? And it becomes just really big, strong energy. And then you focus on what do I want to create, okay? Because it's cool. You have to know what you're angry about to know what's not working. So it's really important and informative. But then you have to know what do you want then? Because the anger is telling you, the rage is telling you what you don't want, what's not working. It's good. Okay. What do you want? Okay. So then when you know what you do want, you take that massive amount of energy that has come from feeling your own anger and rage, and then you focus it on what the hell you do want, and then you put it towards that. And that's how we become agents of change. Okay. But what's happening, and especially for women and mothers, is the feeling of anger, the feeling of rage. I'm bad to feel this. I shouldn't feel this. I feel embarrassed. I feel shame that I feel this. Uh, it's really often a lot of shoulds. Okay, I shouldn't or I should. And so then we don't tap into it. And then really what's happening is a lot of women go to their um, primary care physicians, their psychiatrists, their prescribed medication to not feel anger and rage. And then you don't have access to the potentiality of what that power is. So destruction and creation are two halves to the same whole. Anger is the opposite side of the coin of creation. So I, I feel like women and mothers in particular need to start feeling what they feel angry and rageful about and be with that and understand that we're meant to feel that 
to get really focused on what we want to create and then use that massive amount of force to create it. That's something else that I feel really strongly about. (laughs) Mm. Thank you for that permission. Mm -hmm. That feels, it's, I notice that when I like sit, like I, I can sort of wait out isn't quite the, quite the right word, but if I can like sit in the panic or anxiety, like what comes next is often a grief. And then what comes next is the anger, which, which feels like a life force, which feels like a moving energy as opposed to like, like a oppressive energy, you know, where I'm just like, what are we going to do about it? You know, it's this, and it, and so I wrote this down. Anger is the opposite side of the coin to creation. That's, there is a how in the anger. I mm-hmm. feel that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for all of this, actually. Wow. I um, There's just so much there. And you gave us probably just a, a little tidbit of all that you're working on. But um, we'll, we can, we'll complete here. I guess I just have one final, one final question for you, which just seems again, a lot of this, a lot of this interview is very personal to me. And I find a lot of people like to peep in on my life in that way. But I'd love to know your thoughts on, on mothering the mother, whether we have a a baby, a physical baby or not. But this concept of ways to honor the mother in our culture, in our community, in our bodies, in our, in our families, if there's anything you can say about that. What comes for me is that we honor the mother through honoring the mothers, yeah. you know, really, because I feel like sometimes people want to, I don't know, get really far out with things. And it's like, how about you bring the mothers some warm food to eat? You know, how about you check in on the mothers? How, you know, that's how we honor the mother. Like we are microcosms of mother earth. And so when we're honoring mothers, we're honoring mother earth, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's really what I think of because mothers are not honored. (laughs) Mothers are not honored. And it's like, it's so crazy to me to see the state that mothers are in. And clearly for myself too. I mean, I really think about this most of the day, most of my days. Like there is a mother in our local town. And I feel like I talked about this on Amber's Medicine Story podcast, but my daughter was dancing. She's one of the dance teachers. I brought her a big jar of hot chai for the dance recital because there she is with her, you know, two month old baby and working a million hours. And she was like so deeply moved. And I appreciated her gratitude, but I'm like, she's so moved because I had the conscious awareness to bring her something warm to drink, Mm -hmm. you know, or the other day, a friend of ours came over and my husband got a massage here in our home and she has a little baby. And, you know, I know that she does her thing where she breastfeeds her baby. She goes out and does her work and then she goes home and nurses her baby again. And that stresses me out in and of itself. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, I, it's like, I'm grateful she has her work. And I'm like, it's so shitty that she has to do this work because she's the one who needs to be receiving this work. Uh, it's like a whole thing. 
But anyways, you know, before she left, I had made breakfast. And so I said, here, I made this food for you. You know, you can eat it here. You can eat it before you go because I know you're just running home now and you're, you know, you, you nurse and then you're here, then you're going to go home and nurse. And she was like, again, so touched that I considered (laughs) to like offer her food, which I appreciate the appreciation. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, this is just called being human you know? Mm -hmm. And so to me, honoring the mother is everybody waking up to our humanity, remembering our humanity. And you just do the basic human things. You make food for each other. We take care of each other like that. Yeah. Yes. Right. Thank you. Thank you for all of that. And I don't, I don't even know if that answers your question because I don't really know what this honoring of the mother thing is not with mothers. I think it's, um, yeah. What did I mean by that? Or like, is it some kind of ceremony that, that is being done or what is it? Maybe. I think I, I think it came out of this concept that like we all have a mother Mm-hmm. And that like, even if we choose not to become like a mother of a human being, that there's like a mothering in all of us. Maybe I just didn't say that, but that's what I was really trying to get at is there's a, there's a mothering in all of us that can come in like the pot of chai or the like showing up for the mothers is that we need to remember that mm-hmm. part of ourselves mm-hmm. and that it's, it's in all of us and it's what is created. It's what's created life in the cosmos, right? Is this mothering energy and that we all need to use it, mm-hmm. leverage it, tune into it. Mm-hmm. And maybe it is a beautiful ceremony. I could totally see it being that way, but mm-hmm. yeah. Totally. And I mean, mother, maybe just from like maturation from young women to older women, there's just really an assumption of those roles as well, right? Just like not staying in our adolescence. And even if someone decides they don't want to have children, it's still like, well, we still have to grow up. We yes. still have to mature and we still need to take on the responsibilities of that time in our life. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. The archetypal mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Rochelle, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your fire. I really appreciate it so, so much. And I'm really interested in this course you're teaching. So maybe you can share a little bit about it. Yeah, I know people can go find you as innatetraditions.com. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, if there's anything more you want to share for people who, like me, are really curious and fired up about this work. Totally. So I just kind of changed the format this year, like for this year's training. And the way that it's going to be now is I'm just going to be teaching, it's called innate postpartum care certification training. And so starting this year, it's a nine month training. It's online. And this year we're going to start in March and we're going to go through December And really what I've done in my training is we use the female body as a map and we start at the root of the female body and we work all the way up to the head and we go through every single system, every single biological system in the female body to understand what happens during 
the childbearing continuum so that in the postpartum time, we know the proper care that postpartum mothers need. And it's the way that I created this class was in my 20s. Right now I'm 41. And in my 20s, I began to understand that really all of the world's postpartum traditions were virtually identical. And clearly they're going to have different foods depending on the land base and the like, but virtually identical in that they all prescribed the same things for postpartum healing. And those prescriptions in all the postpartum traditions were our an extended resting period after birth, certain kinds of foods, which is nutrient-dense, warm in temperature, warm in nature, easy-to-digest foods after birth, body work, and what am I... So it's community as foundation. Sorry, I'm going to just backtrack, otherwise I'm going to get lost. So community as foundation, because none of these things can happen without community. So then warmth, that's right. So Warmth, warming therapies after birth, the food that I mentioned, the body work, and I'm spacing right now on the fourth thing. It's funny because I talk about this all the time. Anyways, you get my point. So all the traditions are based upon the same things. And so when I saw the the similarity that what's happening in, in China is the same thing that's happening in Mexico, is the same thing that's happening in Russia, is the same thing that's happening in Germany, is the same thing that's happening in Iraq. I'm like, well, there's got to be a biological basis to this. And so the research that I did was for this class, Innate Postpartum Care, that I put together. And it's the biological, the physiological basis to the world's postpartum traditions, that there is a prescription, there is a way that is mapped out for what we need to do to take care of postpartum mothers. And when we follow that way, what we're doing is assuring a vital, excellent health in mothers, so much so that they can become healthier through a properly support, supported postpartum period. And it's exact opposite to what we're seeing because when mothers don't receive this prescription of care, then what we see is sickness, degeneration, inflammation, disease, what's getting labeled as mood disorders and the like. And really, all we have to do is apply that which has been here forever. And we're understanding now the physiology of it, the biology of it, um, apply that, and we just have a path towards health and wellness. So I created the class as a secondary training um, for birth and healthcare professionals. And so it's, like I said before, doulas and midwives and nurses and chiropractors, and we've had some doctors and physical therapists and acupuncturists. So they're coming in with like a foundational knowing, and this is getting layered upon it so that they can weave it into their practices. And then I always get the question of, well, what if like I'm wanting to just start this work or what if I ha do not have this prior training or background, can I take this course if I'm interested in it? And yes, like my answer is yes, because really like the biggest requirement is that the person who wants to take the class wants to support thriving life through the pathway of maternal health. Mm, thank you. How exciting. We'll link to this course on belongingpodcast.com. And we're talking, you said it was March through December. We're in 2021 right now for yeah. people listening, wherever you are in time and space. And this is coming out in February 20. 
21. So, okay. Well, thank you again for your time and your wisdom and your energy. I so appreciate you and appreciate this conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Becca. Thank you so much for joining me. I know your time is sacred and the fact that you spent it with me talking about belonging means a lot. If you want to access show notes or links to old episodes, check out belongingpodcast.com. And if you know a friend who could really benefit from listening to this episode, share it with them. I'll talk to you soon.